I'm Al Phil Reese, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of some poems. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope gain for some poems that interest us, some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Penn Sound archive, writing.upenn.edu slash pensound. Today I'm joined here in Philadelphia at the Kelly Writers House in our Arts Cafe by Leanne Brown, poet, editor, teacher, stirrer up of poetry community happenings, and maker of multimedia poetry events, founder back in 1989 of the great Tender Buttons Press which has been dedicated to publishing experimental poetry by women and other gender-expansive beings, whose own books include In the Laurels Caught, Other Archer, Polyverse, and The Sleep That Changed Everything, and other books, and who divides her time between New York City and Marshall, North Carolina. And by Lainey Brown, whose most recent publications include an anthology, A Forest on Many Stems, Essays on the Poet's Novel, Night Boat, an illustrated talk called The Poet's Novel, A Form of Defiance, Kin Press, and who was forthcoming collections of poetry, collection plural, Laney, you are so productive, translation of the lilies back into lists, wave books, and apprentice to a breathing hand, Omnidon, and who here at Penn, I'm pleased to say, coordinates our massive open online course, ModPo, and teaches creative writing, and by a dear friend of the program, we used to say, Kristen Gallagher, dear friend of the Writer's House as well, writer of weird essay fictions employing methodologies spanning memoir, journalism, archival interpretation, eco-horror, and phenomenology, whose books include 85% True Minor Ecologies, Skeleton Man 2017, Grand Central, Troll Thread 2016, and We Are Here, Truck Books 2011, whose recent unpublished nonfiction was a finalist for the 2020 Essay Press Creative Nonfiction Contest and who, dun-da-da-da, has recently been awarded an artist grant from the official, super-official New York State Council on the Arts. Kristen, not only is it great to see you, but to be here just after this celebratory thing happened to you, why the heck did New York State decide to do something as radical as whatever you proposed? I have no idea. Um, it may be because it's a, the grant was written really well by me, and it's a collaboration with uh, my longtime friend and filmmaker, Tara Miranda Nelson, who does experimental film. I'm the writer on the project, and we're mining an, a, a really large, undercared-for lantern slide collection. Wow. And trying to kind of research, find out as much as we can about these very old lantern slides and where they're from. And I'm writing things kind of um, looking at like the material conditions of the lantern slides and also the images in them. And then like riffing a little bit about our contemporary world. Wow, that is very cool. Yeah. And does it does the project have a title? Um, right now it's called An Exercise with Objects. Okay. So for those listening to this years from now, they're likely to be able to find it that way or they can you know, use their favorite search engine and type in Kristen Gallagher lantern slides and probably... I think it'll work, Probably yeah. find it. Okay. Lainey Brown, great to see you as always. Happy to be here. So glad you're... And really, you are the co-curator of this particular poem talk, and I wanted to acknowledge that from Thank the start. You. 
and Leanne Brown. Hello. Hi, Al. How, How you are you? I'm good. It's always good to Happy see to you. Happy to be this here. Is, this is a good. Again. This is a good threesome to be hanging around with for poem talk. I'm really excited. Today we uh, four have gathered here to talk about three of the poems in Diane de Prima's legendary book, Revolutionary Letters. We'll be discussing poems numbered sixteen, aka "We Are Eating Up the Planet," nineteen, "If What You Want Is Jobs," and twenty-seven, "How Much Can We Afford to Lose Before We Win." De Prima began writing these poem letters in 1968, and they were published by City Lights in 1971, and the 50th anniversary edition was put out by City Lights in 2021. And our recordings of De Prima performing these three poems come from various sources and are available at the De Prima pen sound page. Number 16 is a recording that was made in 1969, before the publication of the book, so that's cool. Number 19 is an undated recording, but I've been able to have a sense that it's 1982 or thereabouts. And number 27 was performed at Naropa in 1978. So here now is Diane de Prima performing three of her revolutionary letters. Revolutionary letter number 16. We are eating up the planet. The New York Times takes a forest every Sunday. Los Angeles draws its water from the Sacramento Valley. The rivers of British Columbia are ours on lease for 99 years. Every large factory is an infringement of our God-given right to light and air, to clean and flowing rivers stocked with fish, to the very possibility of life for our children's children. We will have to look carefully, i.e., do we really want, need electricity, and at what cost in natural resource, human resource, do we need cars when petroleum pumped from the earth poisons the land around for a hundred years, pumped from the car poisons the hard-pressed cities? Or try this statistic. The USA has 5% of the world's people, uses over 50% of the world's goods. Our garbage holds matter for survival for uncounted, underdeveloped nations. If what you want is jobs for everyone, you are still the enemy. You have not thought through clearly what that means. If what you want is housing, industry, GE on the Navajo reservation, a car for everyone, garage, refrigerator, TV, more plumbing, scientific freeways, you are still the enemy. You have chosen to sacrifice the planet for a few years of some science fiction utopia. If what you want still is or can be schools, where all our kids are pushed into one shape, are taught it's better to be American than black or Indian or Jap or Puerto Rican, where Dick and Jane become and are the dream. Do you look like Dick's father? Don't you wish, think your kid secretly wishes you did? If what you want is clinics where the AMA can feed you pills to keep you weak or sterile, shoot germs into your kid while Merck and Co. grows richer, if you want free psychiatric help for everyone so that the shrinks, pimps for this decadence can make it flower for us. If you want, if you still want a piece, a small piece of suburbia, green lawn laid down by the square foot, color TV whose radiant energy kills brain cells, whose subliminal ads brainwash your children, have taken over your dreams. Degrees from universities, which are nothing more than slum landlords, festering sinks of lies, 
so you too can go forth and lie to others on some greeny campus. Then you are still the enemy. You are selling yourself short. Remember, you can have what you ask for. Ask for everything. How much can we afford to lose before we win? Can we cut hair, give up drugs, take job, join Minutemen, marry, wear their clothes, play bingo? What can we stomach? How soon does it leave its mark? Can we, living straight in the straight part of town, still see our people? Can we live if we don't see our people? It is better to lose and win than win and be defeated, said Gertrude Stein. Which would you choose? That last recording was before a large audience and one gets the sense outdoors, so one has a feeling of not just a reading but a rally of some kind. So that leads me to my first question for Kristen to start. Can a poem advocate a political stance and be political in the sense of the aspiration of changing things that are wrong? Um, clearly, De Prima thinks, yes. How do you feel about that, looking way back at this moment from our time? Uh, yeah, great. I guess I think a poem can do whatever anyone wants it to on some level, right? I tend to gravitate towards poems that uh, maybe act a little bit less as like messaging devices and a little bit more at things that offer like kind of a, a real sense of an outside, um, something that really shakes people's perception or sensual experience up so that they really feel like the place they're in or the world they're living in or the, the things they've assumed um, are not all there is, right? That there's some kind of outside. So, you know, if I were to express any kind of critique of the writing here, I might say that it's like heavy on messaging. But I don't really actually have a problem with that. I think it's great, you know, and it's, uh, I spent the last few days talking to lots of people about Diane de Prima and the issues that are raised in these poems, like generate great conversations, right? So I think as a device for that, they're fantastic. Yeah. Lady, your thought on this? Well, she was very intentional in this particular series of poems that she wrote throughout her life um, to want to be legible very quickly in the public space. And not all of her writing is like that, but these letters are like that. And so I think it's great that she figured out how to do that. In other words, there's many audiences, and one audience is a, is a rally in a public space, and she could do that. I don't know that every poet feels called to do that or does it well, but, but she does and did and did it throughout her whole life while writing in other modes simultaneously. She, soon after moving to San Francisco in 1968, in part to work with the diggers, she which is an activist performance troupe that distributed free food around the Bay Area, she thought of these letters, Leanne, as part of that activist performance. And that context is very important. Um, when reading the poem, they were made to be 
recited or spoken loudly on the steps of San Francisco City Hall, for instance, copies handed out to passing officials as a kind of urgent performance. So you have to have that context really to understand the polemic, the polemical qualities of the thing. So where would you take that? Um, you're, a, you're a poet who also loves to think about performing in the different zones and spaces with different audiences. What's your thought about her sense of her audience? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is that, as I recall, is dedicated to her Italian anarchist uncle, the whole project. That I think she the grew grandfather, up with. Grand, uh, grandfather, Malazzi, Domenico Malazzi, was a very famous Italian yeah. anarchist. Yeah, yeah and I, I see them as sort of mixture of um, manifestos and speeches, but also in the context of being a letter poem, a, a pistolatory poem, which is you know a very rich history and um. What Bernadette Mayer said the other day is like, if you say the letter is a poem, it's a poem. If you say it's a poem, it's a poem. So I, I feel like it's very much, um, you know, dealing with th- th- this this great form of the letter poem, which is addressed to people. You know, it's addressed to people in order to revolutionize them, and it also reminds me formally of um, an improvisational poem where it's sonically dense, um, and it's sometimes they're sonnet-like um, length, but they go on longer if they need to. But they remind me of Kerouac's Mexico City Blues, and and the form of those were d- dictated by the the notebook in his pocket, and it was like the certain size. And I always think that they're you know the, the way the City Lights book is always they're they're sort of uniform size made for yeah. City Lights. I love yeah, that. Yeah. I love the connection to Kerouac, yeah. who was not going to be didactic and polemical, at least in this sense. Let's have a round robin or lightning round where all of us toss into onto the table topics what what are some of the messages clearly climate crisis you know and you read this from 1969 and you think we're still dealing with this in exactly the same way so that's one Kristen, you got one um yeah well i mean in keeping what I, with what i was saying before i think um a lot of this is stuff that we now i think as a, a lefties recognize as stuff that's really happening so it's unfortunately maybe not even news to us but um, the things that still feel challenging or kind of point really shake you up and make you think outside of where you are right now right do we really want need electricity I like that this is my favorite line in the first one because it sort of puts you outside of Mm. your habitual thinking and I think particularly electricity on reservations which has a, has an effect uh, on the community. Okay, Lainey, we have climate crisis and electrification, kind of forced electrification. Or like changing the way that we live dramatically, living without the comforts we're accustomed to. Yeah, which leads to consumerism as a kind of unsustainable way to proceed. Okay, Leanne? I would, I would say conformity. That goes mm-hmm. with both of these other points, but just that, you know, these, these sort of liberal pearl clutching, you know, of trends of like you're not going far enough. If you want jobs for everyone, you're the enemy. I mean, it's like, it's very radical. It's mm-hmm. like you got to okay. rethink your whole position. You know? That's another one. Uh, I would add socialization through education. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dick and Jane, the Green. Mm-hmm. Kristen, add another one. Uh, yeah, top-down medical establishment. 
And psyche, psychiatry. Psychiatry, so she's vaccination. A she's a leftist, anti-psychiatric person. And also the vaccination thing gave me a little bit of the heebie-jeebies, yeah, so we've got to right. deal with that. Yeah. Okay, Lainey, your turn. Um, economic inequity. Okay. Leanne? White picket fence-ism against that. Television that radiates bad oh, yeah. energy. And infects your Subliminal dreams. Subliminal ads. These are three revolutionary letters, and they're probably 20 topics, right? So, Lainey, what do we do with that? That's Everything is here. You think of short poems as maybe taking one topic at a time. <laughs> this is a whole platform. Right. I mean, I, I feel like it's, a, it's deliberately radical and so much as a, as a wake-up call. So address all of it, address any of it, see how all the pieces are interlocking. I feel like she's asking for us to rethink our thinking. In other words, instead of thinking about one problem that's affecting me and my neighborhood, we have to think about broader and not just a city or a state or a country. We have to think globally. Yeah, it's a systemic sort of cybernetic feedback loop. Everything mm -hmm. touches on everything else, so you can't really address one thing at a time. It's a house of cards. Mm -hmm. Let's turn to number 19. This is the one for the Poor People's Campaign, and it's structured differently from the others. It's structured in an if-then thing. There's a lot of ifs, so liberal, hopeful, progressive hopiness if you want this and if you want that, and nothing wrong with jobs at the beginning. If you want housing, nothing wrong with that. But then she lures you into realizing what the consequences of all those wants are. Then we start over, if you want, if what you want, and then, all caps, then. That's different from the others. Does anybody want to deal with that? I mean, I think to speak to Leanne's point, I think earlier that, you know, the context she's writing in, she's writing to you know, people who are maybe, you know, the downtown scene, the hippie movement on the West Coast, you know, people who are already kind of loosely identifying with the left, but she's pushing them further left, right? I think she's trying to call them out on their comfort, call them out on their like easy, maybe liberalism is what we would call it today, um, pushing people even further, right? Like you want free school, I want to abolish, you know, state-sanctioned ideological education, right? Um, stuff like that. And she's saying, if she's making a call for it, you're selling yourself short. There's more. You know, ask for everything. That's mm -hmm. yeah. the great part of the poem is that, yeah. you know, let's, let's ask for more than these things, like this, this housing and the refrigerators, like Sadie, Sadie, married lady, meet a mortgagee. You know, yeah. like, you don't want yeah. that. You know? yeah. yeah, there's something about, there's something about like liberalism that's like, let's take it, the world and not change it, but somehow make it better. Right. And you can't do that. Right. I think she's trying to say, like, we you want a better world. We're going to have to actually get rid of all of these things. We're going to have to imagine something radically different. Right. All of these things can't come with us. I promise that this next question that I'm dying to ask you leads back to poetry as a form. So the channeling of what she learned from grandfather Domenico Malozzi and through Malazzi, who was a good friend of Carlo Tresca, so this is like Italian anarchism, like a classic lineage. 
that some new left people were interested in in the 60s, um, that's what's left of liberalism in this poem, Anarchism. This is exactly what you've been talking about. I'm just putting a, an ism to it. Anarchism was not simply to the left of liberalism radicalizing in this classic 60s sense, but anarchism was, it's the whole grid that's the problem, right? It's GE on reservations. So in the 30s, the New Deal would buy the idea of uh, engaging the private sector on a reservation so that we can get electricity to poor people who need it so they can have telephones and so forth. But the anarchist is that's a bad thing because it's connected to the corporate grid. And so that's what, that's what she's really doing. So she's sending these out. There was the Liberation News Service would carry these letters uh, distributed to 200 independent radical newspapers around the country in the 60s, and there would always be a revolutionary letter in it. And so she was sneaking, I think, sneaking anarchism old-fashioned, early 20th century anarchism into a lot of hippie and yippie stuff that was so much more collective and unconsciously buying into the grid. So can poetry be anarchic or anarchist? And is this it? And how does that make you feel as poets, the three of you? How does this get under your skin. This is just to take Laney as an example. Not a Laney Brown poem isn't going to look like this, but clearly you have tremendous respect for it and it's important to you. Maybe we'll start with you. Well, I kind of want to go back to that end of the letter 19 that we were just looking at because I feel like in a way it's the most radical, the most challenging. I feel like it's a double punch because she's you read saying... read those lines? Yeah, she's saying then you are still the enemy. In other words, if you want all of these things, and it's all caps, then you are still the enemy. You are selling yourself short. Remember, you can have what you ask for. Ask for everything. So saying you're the enemy is saying, okay, we're all complicit, every single person who's hearing this, that it's in the air, you're part of the problem. But then it's turning radically around and saying, what... It, it's becoming spiritual, in my opinion. So it's asked for everything because there is that mystical, spiritual element coupled with this devotion to activism, which is powerful if we can hold it all in the same place. But the big question is, what does she mean? In other words, mm -hmm. what does the everything include? And from a utopian point of view, it might be different from each person, from an anarchist point of view. Mm -hmm. So then that creates this logistical question it's like a koan or something i i can't you know logistical and aesthetic and poetic right which is i find really interesting yeah i was going to say i i i see that as the most utopian moment in the poem for sure right because the rest of it is actually what we don't want it's a lot it's a lot of negation um but at the end, we are invited to ask for a whole new world, right? But yeah, it doesn't really offer like the full utopian vision. So we have to talk about what that would be. And it would be different for different people. But it seems interesting, like from what Al's saying about it being anarchism, that is really kind of about more like getting rid of all these like superstructural things that we have 
and just living off the land in small communities, very DIY. It's not like, you know, acid communism, like luxury communism a la Mark Fisher or something like that. Um, it's a different kind of utopia. It's like a tribal live on the land utopia, I think, is what it's in, in, in the wake of all this negation. I feel like that utopia is something a little more back to the land. That's what I see. And there's going a break. I to- I'm totally with you. And there's a break out of the rhetoric, the negative rhetoric of list of particularities, which is the poetic register that we know and most of us like. Um, the, neg- the list turns out to be negative liberalism, and the thing that gets us toward the positive, then you are still the enemy, is a, did you say the word mystical? Mm-hmm. Yeah, is a mystical, whole-loving, W-H-O-L-E, whole-loving, it's always one big something, right? If we can get out of the mode of the details of the life, that liberalism has led us to even when we're criticizing it and poetically break into something, a much more visionary, large kind of rhetoric that is definitely not in fashion, wasn't then, isn't now. That's where this poem leads. And that's the poetic register that she's going toward, which is totally different. I think that's right. And I think it's really challenging for the reader. I mean, if we take it seriously, it's really easy to just gloss over it and just say, oh yeah, everything. But I mean, I think it's really an an invocation and an instruction. Like, what is everything? Mm-hmm. Imagine it, make it happen. Mm. And I think that's where the third one is important because it says, how long could we live these sort of more normalized lives without connection to our tribe and still maintain these these dreams and these this you know this yearning for the utopia like we we can't we, it it's an integral to our daily life we can't just you know have a little house in suburbia and do these things and have straight lives and still and have everything it's it's really pointing that out it is better to lose and win L- losing means letting in the Kristen Gallagher sense this is what you were talking about before it's much better to get rid of stuff including poetically. And that's, of course, it turns out to be another anarchist from the early 20th century, Gertrude Stein. (laughs) (laughs) The other thing I I just keep thinking about is um, when I met her, that... You met Gertrude Stein? How fabulous. Diana Prima. (laughs) (laughs) One thing that she... I remember that I went to um, the New College of California to study with her and some other people, and she was nowhere to be found. She sort of dropped out that semester. She she had this one class that was like um, that she was continuing, and I went in search of her, and I couldn't. I never even found her that whole semester because she really dropped out. She was like out of sight because her. But she was. She said, and when I finally talked to her, she said she was astrally projecting and visiting her she children. She used the word astral. Yeah, nice. she was visiting her children. Her mother was dying or had died, so she was having a lot of um, space with her mother thinking about her mother, and then she was um, take, keeping track of all her children who lived in different places by astrally projecting and visiting them. And I was just so impressed with that, you know, that she could do that, you know. <laughs> that it's like a whole different reality of a way to be, you know. So you went yeah. to, to be a student or yeah. mentee. Yeah. She was absent, but you did connect in the sense of her being absent, like she explained to you right. why I she was I finally found there. her, yeah. Got yeah. her to do a tarot reading and things like that. But 
you know, it's a whole lots of stories, but yeah, yeah, this whole thing of like drop out, you know. Yeah, right. That's the you don't have to be even if you're a professor at this school, you don't even have to be there. I was like, wow, you know, like that's the utopian vision, right? Well, you know, without showing up to work. (laughs) One of the when we compile a list of issues, and this is not. Yes, it's full of issues, but it, generally it's pivoting away from issues because issues, you can win on the psychiatric domination of the psychiatric cadre of the state and lose on electrification. You know, it's just, it's like whack-a-mole of political problems. Which don't, <laughs> and don't we feel that that's our political job these days is to whack away? Um, gosh, I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the, when we compiled the list... We forgot the university. Yes. Right. Uh, and and this is ironic that we're discussing it in well, Ivy League right. University. The Arts Cafe. Right. You did mention education. Counts, but, yeah, education. But, but when you talked about meeting her, like she dropped out of the program that you signed it up It was for, a radical college. Which was, was already a radical college. It not exist anymore. You and know? she wouldn't even do the radical college. Right. She was outside the radical. Yeah. yeah. So that's like the challenge, Lainey Brown, is... Like not even anything that's set up to pass along learning is not, she's not interested in. And this is Revolutionary Letters, 50th anniversary. It's kind of canonized in a bright red communistic, (laughs) you know, city lights. But even so, you know, how do you prevent Revolutionary Letters from being canonized by us who long from our liberal left position, if I may generalize towards something more fundamentally refusing. Considering education in all different kinds of environments is one thing that this text raises. And so I feel like it's very useful as an example to young anarchist revolutionaries or of any age, but particularly thinking of young people in education to to do it yourself. In other words, there is no one coming to save you, each of us. Each of us has to get out and do something. And so her ability to do this is, in, is inspiring by example. Nice. Yeah, I mean, I think that part of what this conversation and, and coming out of these poems, what I think she's directing us towards is the kind of dropping out, right? Which is, you know, something that I think the hippie movement obviously was big on, right? Tune, Tune in, in, turn on, turn on <laughs> drop out. Thanks. I was Don't forget gonna, the other parts. Not sure I could remember all the parts. Yeah, dropping out. There are right? only three of them. Yeah, right, I know. Um, so dropping out, right, how important that is. And I think that, like, to get outside truly of these systems, one does kind of have to drop out. I don't know. I don't think you can do it from inside the system. Like, I don't, I just don't think you can. Um, like really a real radical dropping out. Like you can't post about it on Facebook. That's not it, you know, but like... And you can't, like we should spell that out. You can't because the platform itself yeah. is the thing that you need to oppose. So yeah. why, it, that is that is the classic dilemma of social reform. Yeah, and the problem too, I think part of why the hippie movement didn't entirely work is because dropping out even isn't enough, right? Like because there's still the issue of like how you live and like what do you what do you build and like what do you do with the fact that technology exists and isn't inherently bad right it's just being used for bad so there's larger questions um which is what like i'm going to say it again mark fisher's acid communism is about right it's about like how can we get like like hardline marxists and hippie dropouts to like 
coagulate into something else, right? Which hasn't happened yet. That's like a utopian vision that hasn't been yes, achieved this yet. This was right? in some what the people of 1968 in several places, Paris in particular, but not only, had to deal with. There were at least two huge factions. And there was simply, there was, for lack of a better word, there was counterculturalism. And then there was revolutionary politics, and the two didn't mix very well, and <laughs> everybody found out in 68 and again 70 and 71. And speaking of that, and, and, and wanting to get us back to the analogy between her conception of revolution and her conception of a poem, what a poem can do, she believed that revolution, and she said this, that revolution, like poetry, was a living entity. So I'm going to say that again and get comments from all of you on this. Revolution is not something that happens. It is a thing that, at least anarchists believe this, is a thing that is always going to be in there. And poetry is the same way, that it is not a poem. It is like this project, as Laney pointed out, yes, it was published, but for the rest of her career, she would write a revolutionary letter here and there. So revolution, like poetry, is a living entity. And my question to you is, can you talk about that analogy, huge analogy, and also whether it is instantiated in these poems that we've selected in, in, in any way? I mean, I think it's something that doesn't end, right? It's not an end goal. You're not like there's a revolution and then everything's better, right? It, it requires like a constant grassroots, bottom-up democratization of processes, right? Um, I'm thinking of like Allende's project in Chile is like to have... You know, there's still like systems that exist. There's still kind of a government, but there's everything is coming from like the people in small cadres and groups. Um, and it's a constant process that constantly remakes itself. I don't know if these poems are like doing that. Um, these poems seem like they're more interested in just trying to get all the crap out of the way of that, which is a necessary step. You can't like just leap into Allende. To continue to think about her rejection of closure in this form about how, you know, as, as something comes up and she writes one, like it, it, you can just feel that bubbling up. And the, the other anecdotal thing I wanted to say was when I, you know, it's still the same question I always struggle with. It was like, how do I finish my book? And I was like doing my first book. And, and, um, and she said, I said, well, I, what if I write more poems like this one, these ones? And she said, oh, well, Robert Duncan did structure of rhyme in the you know, 16, and then Structure of Rhyme 34, and he, like, put them in all his books across his work. And I, that was very liberatory to me, and it helped me have closure on my book, and say, because I knew that it would be, I would be a it, chance to put it, more later. You could do more later, right, yeah, exactly. That's interesting that she used Robert Duncan as the, as the example, and not say, well, in my revolutionary letters, I write more and more and more. Like, it's, it, she's definitely a part of this, and I remember her talking about, you know, um, Wordsworth, and things like, she's very much a part of, you know, mm. this wild poetic lineage, you know, mm. she's very invested in that utopian kind of boiling up of energy, you know, mm. that's constantly transforming. And Loba being a long poem that transformed over time and grew, you know. Yeah, I like that too, because I think you're pointing to like just process, right? It's like there's no finishing, there's no perfection, like the book isn't like absolutely pristinely finished, there's just this ongoing process. It doesn't and mean that each line is not pristinely amazing. <laughs> like, right, like right, right, right. It's the kind of poetry, yeah. Lainey Brown, thank you again for, for curating this session, because it's the kind of poetry that poem talk is typically not very good at. 
in in the sense that poem talk 180 episodes of it you know often is about close reading by the line it's not always you know i'm not it's not really in a box but a poem that works well in poem talk is going to one is going to be one that requires or calls out for some close reading we could do that but that would be somewhat to miss the point and it seems to me that the close reading would be missing the forest for the trees, which is just what that list of things you shouldn't be doing poem does. Or to put it another way, it misses the fact that poetically it is better to lose and win. Because the winning is that larger project level thing that Leanne was just talking about, the advice that she got. And thus it produces a poetry that is rougher by, at the level of the poem than at the level of the project. So I guess I'm saying thank you for drawing our attention to this, and I would invite you to say a little more about why you felt it was urgent or the right moment to get De Prima into the canon, I'm putting the quotes around that, of Poem Talk episodes. Well, I wanted to respond to your question about um, aliveness and poetry and revolution. Um, because poetry, I think of poetry as a live transmission. It's not fixed. So it may be published on the page, but it lives in the interactions between people in a room when it's spoken, when it's performed. And I feel like these poems are a great example of that because they're really written to be read in public and it might be different each, each iteration, right? So... I have two more thought topics that I want us to get to, and then, and then we'll just do final thoughts. So we'll get a chance to bring up some issues that haven't come up. I'm going to ask Zach to play for us Revolutionary Letter 16, the first of the three. I'm going to ask us to listen. This is a 1969 recording, which comes before the book was published. So anybody who knew Revolutionary Letters at that point would only know it from broadsides and radical newspapers and hearing it on the steps of San Francisco City Hall. So she's reading this poem. It sounds like at a reading, but I would like to ask you in a poetry reading sense, what is this voice like? Revolutionary letter number 16. We are eating up the planet. The New York Times takes a forest every Sunday. Los Angeles draws its water from the Sacramento Valley. The rivers of British Columbia are ours on lease for 99 years. Every large factory is an infringement of our God-given right to light and air, to clean and flowing rivers stocked with fish, to the very possibility of life for our children's children. We will have to look carefully, i.e., do we really want, need electricity, and at what cost in natural resource, human resource? Do we need cars when petroleum pumped from the earth poisons the land around for a hundred years, pumped from the car poisons the hard-pressed cities? Or try this statistic. The USA has 5% of the world's people, uses over 50% of the world's goods. Our garbage holds matter for survival for uncounted, underdeveloped nations. What is that voice? That reminds me of Allen Ginsberg. It does in the upturn at the end yeah. of the line, so it helps with the listiness of it. Feels incantatory. Incantatory. 
it her, feels she, determined, but also fluid and kind of not, it, it feels gentle, even though it's strong. Yes, that, that's my feeling, gentle. I mean, there's something either faux innocent or just truly innocent about this. Why can't we get this shit right? It sounds really young. 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 I, it reminds me, it's a very different poet. It reminds me of the very early recordings of Lynn Hijinian reading My Life. There's something San Franciscan about it, if I can put it that way. De- definitely beat-influenced. Later, the voice gets rougher. I don't know if she was a smoker, but we get a lower voice. I guess aging will do that. Any other thoughts about this? And so tone? We well, just com- dis- it has this mixture of the formal, like the, the howl kind of um, listing and, you know, just bringing it all on. And then it's got this, try this statistic. It's It gets very factual, but it's like she's speaking directly to the, to the audience. I mean, she's mm. like, try this on for size. Like, yeah. if this wasn't enough, what about this? You know? Yeah. That's a really so good point. The try this moment is very like vernacular. Like you're chatting with somebody, you're yeah. talking to someone, check this out. Hmm. I think it's inviting too, even mm. though it's pretty yeah. adamant. You know, you want to like this voice. I'd like to get to know that voice. Yeah. Yeah. The sec, like the next poem is a little more aggressive. Right, nineteen, where you know and it you are the enemy. It too in the performance. Yeah, right, and the performance is aggressive. This was definitely not aggressive. This is like a pensive, almost like you could mm. be thinking to yourself, like lamenting. Sad. Yeah, sad. Yeah. yeah, sad and hopeful. All right, my last question is about going back to the psychiatrists. So, I'm very interested in, of course, very inter- We're all interested in conservative anti-psychiatry. There's plenty of that in the 50s and 60s and today. Um, but this is left antipsychiatry, which is actually more complicated and maybe more powerful. So I'll read the passage, and I'd like to invite each of you just to comment what you think is going on. So left antipsychiatry, in, certainly in the early 60s, was a real... It, it almost burgeoned into the, to the leftist movements of the 60s because it became... It was a way of critiquing the 50s and its automatonization of, you know, people taking tranquilizers and stuff. Um, and, and here it's much more connected to a, to a conspiracy. And then we can get to the, possibly the anti-vaccination thing. So I'll read the lines about psychiatry. If you want free psychiatric help, so, so, far, so far, those of us at universities particularly who have kids, yes. Right? Yes, because it is really expensive. Okay. If you want free psychiatric help for everyone so that the shrinks, pimps for this decadence, can make it flower for us. Okay, so that's the passage. Can we comment on that? I think it's the critique is really about like establishment medicine, I think. I think it's about like top down like statist kind of oriented things, right? Like a doctor as a mediator to your relationship to yourself, right? Whereas Pimping you could also have- a pretty serious charge there. Yeah, but there's also a way that one can have psychoanalysis that is more democratized and more kind of shared and where 
you know, patients have more autonomy over their own experiences. There's all kinds of interventions that have been made into psychoanalysis and the study of psychology in this way, right? So I think it's um, like what you said, the left critique versus the right critique of, of psychiatry. It's important to see the difference between them. To me, it's about like a kind of top, a critique of a top-down oriented medicalization psychiatry. Right. Yeah, Forcing people who have a tendency for social reasons as well as familial and genetic reasons to stand outside central values, centrist values, instead of medicalizing them and giving them meds so they can come back, scamper into the center, they are allowed to stand apart. And we can call that mental ill health or we can call that difference. That's what left anti-psychiatry is. And so she's really, I mean, pimping for the decadence. That's, that's a very mighty So the it charge. is the decadence. It flower for us can make it flower for us, the decadence. Yeah, that's so weird, isn't it? But it, to me, it's like this entitlement. She's saying like, she said, oh, it's okay. You, you can want all these things. You can, ha- you know, you can have these material things that, that yeah. the psychiatrists or psychologists are saying, you know, yeah. you can have it all in a different kind of way. Totally. Yeah. I mean, my father has passed, yeah. so I'm just, I would never invoke him uh, <laughs> while he's around, but he... He wouldn't mind. I mean, you know, so he was so sad. I mean, he was a wonderful, happy person. G.I. Bill fought in World War II. He was never tranquilized, but he went to the suburbs. It's not a, not a mowing your lawn ever kind of person. And the loss that was involved in the capitulation, to be satisfied with a small piece of suburbia, um, it didn't take, it wasn't a, person experiencing mental ill health or who had flashbacks to dropping bombs on people from the air and had trouble with that and then were made to adjust to suburbia of the 50s, which made for the affluence, which the 60s rejected, starting with this, you know, that's the whole community being shown to have been duped. Uh pimps for this decadence is not too strong a charge. So, okay, you ready to go to the vaccination thing? So, Kristen, give us a little of the background, or maybe close read the line. If what you want is clinics where the AMA can feed you pills to keep you weak or sterile, shoot germs into your kids while Merck and Co. grows richer. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think people have, when revisiting this in the context of a pandemic where we have people refusing vaccinations, um, some people have said, like, is Deprima anti-vax? Is she an anti-vaxxer? Um, and again, I would just say, like, as someone who is fully vaccinated and boosted, please put that in the final edit. Um, you know, I, I, I imagine that this is a critique, again, of, like... Um, a sort of state-sanctioned, centralized, top-down medical establishment that is, like, completely bound up with the forces of capitalism so that when you're mowing your lawn and getting your suburban house, all the stuff you're buying into is, like, interwoven with trusting doctors and trusting that the medicine you're being given is as pure as they say it is, that the FDA really works the way it says it does. Um, The trust, right? I think she's really trying to break people's trust in those things. Unfortunately, we have a right-wing movement right now that's like 
doing its own version of not trusting in those things. And I think it's easy to get confused between the versions of that. Does that make sense? I, I see it as like a, a thoughtless approach to any, any of the things, like not to say that medicine is bad or school is bad, but I mean, I feel like you said it so well, Kristen, um, but what's bad is to just blindly not investigate anything and accept it without thinking. But I also think that thinking will make me want to be vaccinated. That's why I'm vaccinated. <laughs> I thought about it, right? So I feel like she there's a danger of not thinking independently. And I feel like it's a really uh, clear critique of pharmaceutical company greed, unsustainable prices of you know, healthcare rising and so on. Yeah. Well, let us. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow, I didn't. Th- I didn't know we were going to get there. Lainey, yeah. you really knew all this was going to come out. Mm-hmm. Have we done final thoughts? I don't think we have. Okay, <laughs> those are the, the final this thoughts. This is the, <laughs> dismal. The, the best and longest poem talk in history. So I'm going to ask for quick final thoughts, and then we're going to do gathering paradise. So who's got a final thought? I'm ready. I just wanted to read a few uh, words that from Deprima reading in 2008, talking about the origin of the revolutionary letters. And I found this transcribed in Cedar Saigo's uh, terrific book in the Bagley Wright lectures titled Guard the Mysteries. What happened was somebody in New York hired a flatbed truck, Sam Abrams, a poet, and a generator that would run an amplifier. And we went out, some folk singers who were considered very radical, guerrilla theater people who did street theater and poets. And we all went over to New York. This was those years of assassinations around 67, 68 or so, not the first wave, but the second wave of assassinations. And we would just perform places. And I realized the poems I had were too intellectual for that kind of performing. So I started to write some things that were something you could hear on one hearing on the street, something more like guerrilla theater, even though it was poetry. And that became the Revolutionary Letters. Thank you for putting that into the record. Much appreciated. Leanne? Yeah, I just would make a call for everybody to write their own revolutionary letters and try to be in the spirit of um, when that when things rise up, be passionate and write to everyone. Thank you, Kristen. Uh, yeah, I think this dovetails nicely with what Leanne just said. Um, I feel like poetry, the poetry community that we all share and emerge from, the the particular lineage that we share. Um, needs to go back a little bit into more of a drop-out mode, um, more of an extreme kind of connection to subculture. I think we've moved away from that since these poems were written. I think we need to get back to that. My final thought is usually, usually I'm like a cheerleader of happy final thought, um, and usually an affirmation of our choices. I still am totally affirmative on our choice of just of talking about these revolutionary letters and I'm glad that poem talk now includes them um, there's a lot of misunderstanding from 20 the 2020s back to when was occupied 2011 I believe mm-hmm. 
So if you take 2021's reading of 2011, and then you have that occupy reread the 90s, the go-go 90s, which came from a certain go-go 80s, um, it's so easy from these telescopic pers political perspectives to misread the 60s. It's very easy for us to see the politics of this and see it as cruel and, and wrong in its almost Zen-like demands. Revolutionary Letter 17, even the poorest of us will have to give up something to live free. It's very easy to misread that as cruel and stupid. Even the poorest of us will have to give up something to live free. That is meant in a Zen sort of way. We are, there's All of us participate in wanting too much or gathering too much around us, even those who are very limited in what they can do. I'm not defending that sentiment. I'm saying that that sentiment needs to be close read because it's it's driving toward a, a different kind of freedom that doesn't require wanting all of that, including maybe even electricity brought in by GE. This is a very complicated stuff. Well, we like to end Poem Talk with a minute or two of Gathering Paradise, a chance for several of us to spread wide our narrow hands, our Dickinsonian hands, to gather a little something really poetically good to hail or commend someone or something going on in the poetry world or the art world or the music world or, and who wants to start? Kristen, you're looking away from me, so I'm going to go with Leanne. Uh, um, one upcoming project that I'm collaborating with my partner, Tony Torn, we are producing Bernadette Mayer's poet's play called Famous People for the Boog Press next festival and we're doing a video play by Bernadette Mayer of a poet's play she wrote called Famous People with Charlotte Rampling and Stephen Hawkins and Jean-Luc Godard in it and Agnes that Varda. Is, that's <laughs> gathering paradise that's like literal paradise <laughs> thank you so much Lainey Brown gather I, some paradise please. I love that well not to be redundant but I just want to encourage everybody to check out this new edition of Revolutionary Letters that came out in 2021 because there's 15 new Revolutionary Letters that had never been published before in that this edition. And it also seems like a good idea to think about reading how she moved into more closer to the time that we're in now to kind of contextualize mm. the project. Fantastic. Thank you. Kristen Gallagher, gather some powers. I always go blank at this. I have never once come here and had anything and to say. And why is that? Can we talk I have about no, that? Yes, help me. I don't know why that There's happens. Something. I go blank. Because you're under the radar. I don't know what it is. What is it? Ask me about like world maybe, communism. I can talk yeah, all Yeah, maybe night. paradise is not your regular mode. I know. I'm too cynical. <laughs> yeah. Um, the abolitionist movement. There you go. Join the abolitionist movement. Wow. It's growing okay. in popularity. More and more people are beginning to at least understand that the police are not priests. And that's gathering paradise. Well, that's all the universities that are nothing but slum landlords we have time for on Poem Talk today. Poem Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing and the Kelly Writer's House at the University of Pennsylvania and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks so much to my guests, Kristen Gallagher, Leanne Brown, and Lainey Brown. 
and to Poem Talk's director and engineer today, Zach Cardner, and to Poem Talk's editor, the same amazing Zach Cardner. Thank you, Zach. And a shout out to Nathan and Elizabeth Light for their very generous support of Poem Talk. This is Al, Phil Reese, and I hope you'll join us next month for another episode of Poem Talk.